Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra as always with James from Gunner Blog. James, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Andrew. How's it going? It's going it's going all right. You know, my daughter is home from Barcelona this weekend, so it's nice to see her. And she came bearing the gift of ham on ruffles. So whatever else has happened this weekend, I've had the ham on-y, salty goodness of those ruffles in my mouth. That is some consolation. Mm. I think we may be kind of, well, it's no surprise really, but psychically linked in some way. I happened to go on your Instagram story about an hour ago. Okay. And I saw that you had been partaking of a Basque cheesecake. Yes. Now. Yeah. At that very moment, (sighs) I was at a farmer's market in North London. Wow. Where there was a woman selling... Basque cheesecake, and I tried a sample of said Basque cheesecake, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is moments apart. It is good. I have to say, I didn't know it was a thing. It's a thing, is it? Yeah, it is. It it is. It's a very popular thing, particularly if you go to somewhere like San Sebastian. There are places that are very famous for it. I think the the place is called La Vigna, and they just sell mountains of this cheesecake every single day it's on the on the tourist trail if you go there but it is an amazing um confectionery whatever you want to call it because oh, it's just you know cream cheese and double cream and sugar and maybe a bit of vanilla or lime whatever you want to put into it but it's baked in the oven so it comes out with this kind of blackened top but if you get it right if you get it just right it's kind of gooey in the middle you know it's yeah. not like crumbly or or you know it's solid but it's got that little bit of goo in the middle and i hope the one that you had had that goo it did i mean i literally tried like a a thimbles full because camille is um dairy intolerant i couldn't justify it was too dangerous for me to buy an entire cheesecake (laughs) because i would have to eat it all you would um but yeah just a weird little coincidence there you go it's nice having uh, your daughter there to distract you. I, I should say before, just before my son was born, I had a conversation with Amy Lawrence, who is a very wise person. Mm. And she said to me, you know, the great thing is once you have your child, you know, if Arsenal don't get a result, they don't win, they lose or they drop points. It just doesn't hurt quite the same. You go home to them, you see, go home to them, you see their little face. You know, they look Smiling up at you, up at you. Yeah. the result just sort of fades away. And why did she lie to me, Andrew? <laughs> why did Amy Lawrence lie? Amy, how could you? I how know. How could right? you? I'm furious. <laughs> furious with her. That's the only reason I had a kid. 
to take the pain of Arsenal away, and it's, he's not even doing that for you. I know. Oh. By the way, we listen. Mm. We we're not a one to. We're not in a great position to laugh at teams conceding early goals uh, this week, but right. it will hearten you to hear that six minutes into the game at St James's Park, Newcastle leads Spurs by two goals to nil. Oh, that's good and bad, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we still have to go there, so yeah. you know, let's hope uh, they can somehow sew up uh, Champions League over the next ninety minutes. I mean, if they keep scoring at this rate, they may well do. Could be like seventeen nil by the end, and yeah. then they'll have used up all their goals for the rest of the season. Uh, at which point, we'll have nothing to worry about by the time we get to uh, St James's Park. I guess there is p- perhaps a feeling that we might not have anything to worry about by the time we get to St James's Park, anyway. After what happened on on Friday night, so, um, I mean, let me ask you this: I mean, how are you feeling now with two days detachment? I tried to write about it a bit in the blog today, where I'm sort of, you know, upset and obviously disheartened by what we did and the mistakes we made and the fact we dropped two points. And you know, there's a there's a part of me that goes, mm, you know, that's. That's not good when you're scrapping for a title, regardless of who you're fighting against, but especially when you're fighting against Man City. You know, I'm I'm quite um, dismayed, I guess, in general. But then I'm sort of talking myself around in other ways. In the, like, you never know. Holland could just sort of career into De Bruyne and smash up both their legs. And then, you know, Ederson could, I don't know, spontaneous combustion, it, you know, there's no real evidence that it could happen, but maybe Phil Foden just sort of disappears into a puff of smoke and they've used up all their subs and we're playing nine man city, you know, that kind of, that Hmm. kind of thing where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hanging on in there. I'm trying to, because there's still, there was a great tweet actually. I can't remember exactly who it was by. Maybe it was by Paddy Arsenal who said only Arsenal could make being five points clear at the top of the table feel bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it is i think of, it was him apologies if it's not but um I, there was a sketch that was doing the rounds on tiktok or instagram in a, in a similar vein it's like an arsenal fan's really upset and his partner's asking him like what's wrong and he's like we're top of the league <laughs> it's just like, is that bad he's like yeah of course it's bad <laughs> um means we're gonna screw it up uh it's the hope that kills you i guess how do i feel um i'm not sure how I feel. It's a lot to unpack and digest. And I I think my main, um, I think I wasn't quite prepared for this. I think I'd spent the whole season looking at the fixture list and thinking, "Ah, Anfield, yeah. St. James's Park, the Etihad. Mm. They're kind of where I'd sort of psychologically prepared myself for it unravelling. I didn't, I didn't have um, Upton Park or, or, or the London Stadium down, and certainly not in the manner that it was there. And I certainly didn't have at home to the bottom team in Southampton mm. as being one of the games where it might be the case. And all those three games, Liverpool, West Ham and Southampton, are sort of crazy enough uh, that were they in isolation, you go, well, that's just a mad game. That's mm. just a mad thing that happened. But it's... It keeps happening. (laughs) And I think you have to, at this point, say that there's something more to that. There's a pattern to that. And the table still, as you say, it's not hideous to look at. We're top of, and, you know, yes, they've got games in hand and we've got to play them, but 
uh, they've got to play us and all that kind of thing. Mm. I think it's just more this that sort of cumulative feeling of um, we're not playing, we're certainly not defending like a team about to win the league. I think that's fair. I found the tweet actually by Paddy at Paddy Arsenal. He said, only Arsenal can make being top of the league and unbeaten in 10 games feel bad. Yeah. And I know exactly what he means by that because, you know, um, when you say it like that, we haven't lost since the Manchester City game. We've uh, accumulated a lot of points. We are top of the league. It is, you know, ostensibly still in our hands. But I think we all recognise that the margin for error is now well and truly gone. And when you're uh, competing with a team like Manchester City, you want that margin to be as big as possible. Like you want the error part to be on Man City and you want the margin to be for us. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it's... Um, it, you're right. Like we, we won seven in a row and then we've drawn three in a row. And had we got those 10 results in a different order, we'd probably be looking on this as like a really impressive run. Mm. Um, but they haven't come in that order. And it's, yeah, it, it does feel like a big stumble. I keep j just, just, you know, I used the word haunted a lot last week. And yeah. I, I am haunted by six points across those three games that we really have let go and you know what about the position it doesn't almost doesn't bear thinking about the position that we would be in with those points. i know and that's you know you we're all doing those sort of mental gymnastics to think well if only if only if only but I, you know a football season is absolutely full of if onlys from from start to finish yeah and you know the the before we get into the nuts and bolts of this game i think the the thing that is not consoling me but keeping me going. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing to even say, isn't it? The thing that's keeping me going as we're top of the table, unbeaten in 10 games, we're at five points clear, albeit Manchester City have games in hand, but if we win our game at Man City, blah, 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 you know, is the fact that I, you know, I, I would much rather this than anything else. Oh, as for sure. As acute as the the pain is and as, as much as it hurts, you know, you kind of forget how much of a gut punch it is when you drop points in games that really, really, really matter. And these games really matter. And for too long, we've had so many games that don't really matter. Are we going to finish sixth or seventh? You know, are we going to finish in the Europa League places or the Europa League conference places or out of Europe? You know, these things, um, you know, even in, in previous seasons, you know, the, the games haven't really mattered in the way that these ones do. So that's kind of my fuel. Um, and I know it sounds absurd to say it, but um, also the fact that, and this is not a new observation, we talked a little bit about this on the Arscast on Friday, myself and Lewis, is that this, the bar has been raised so high that everything that, um, everything you do has to be viewed through the context of what the most relentless team in Premier League history are going to do more than likely. So you you know that a draw is, all, it almost feels like a defeat, even though away from home, you know, you, you could typically look at a draw as a reasonable result, particularly at Anfield. But this is the, this is the context in which the Premier League exists right now. And that's, that's why we're all feeling this, I think. Yes, I mean, if City complete the treble, uh, they may go down as, you know, the, one of the greatest 
sides of all time, um, albeit one you know that that should be given the amount of money that's been spent on it. But uh, that is what we're up against. It's funny. It's the London Marathon today mm-hmm. this morning, and um, it was on TV, and they were showing some of the guys leading at the front, and the analysts were saying. If you watch now, you just see every so often the the front runner there. He keeps looking back over his shoulder, and psychologically, you know, when you're in one of these long races, you, and you have that glance over your shoulder, and you keep seeing that the person behind you, they're not losing ground, they're staying with you. It's mm. like that makes you feel more tired. The race becomes harder at that point. And I was watching this, being like, "Is this a wind up? Are you, are you talking <laughs> to me directly?" Because that is what we've been experiencing—a marathon where. City have just kept the pace up. They've been absolutely relentless of late. All those conversations of they don't look quite right. Harland, you know, is disturbing them, destabilizing them. Mm. Uh, They look like they've got mistakes in them. That's all quietened down. And actually, I think one of the kind of the story, if they do go on and win it, of Guardiola letting Cancelo go in January, effectively inventing a new formation to get the best out of Haaland and the best out of his team. Uh, you know, that that is a big story in itself and has been a massive factor in the second half of the campaign. But I, I, it was so funny watching the marathon, just thinking like, yeah, I see how there may be a kind of mental fatigue for these players and a physical fatigue at this point in time. Yeah. And, and of course, we're measuring every result, as you say, against a raised bar. But the reason that I can't find it in me to be angry like I'm disappointed and I'm sad about the games we haven't won but I can't find it in me to be angry with this group with this these players or or with this manager because they are the guys who have raised those expectations sure. and they've done so in a really yeah. dramatic way you know uh, yeah I mean I think the thing about anger is usually uh, it stems from you know, an inability to uh, correct mistakes that are continuous and things that that happen all the time, and they just happen over and over and over again. And what's been what's been notable about the last number of weeks is that the uncharacteristic defensive errors are exactly that. They're uncharacteristic because you don't get to where we've got to this season by making those mistakes week in, week out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and look, everyone has their own way of, of dealing with disappointment or a bad result. Um, so if you want to be angry, be angry. If you want to be, you know, uh, whatever, be whatever. I mean, no one's telling you um, what to do or think or how to behave or anything like that. But... Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of with you in that I, I feel sad more than anything. Um, disappointed, sad, and sort of a little bit gutted because, you know, I know how hard they've worked to get to this point. I know how hard and how well they've done to to put us in, in this position, you know? Um, and unfortunately, I, I mean, I think there is a really big discussion to be had about the the psychological aspect of of being in this position and maybe being in this position for the first time for some of these players you know um all these buzzwords that get thrown around about choking and bottling and all those kinds of things i just think it's boring it's really not at all interesting to sort of frame it in that way but let's not be blind to the fact that in football in most top level sport there is a psychological element that sometimes you have to learn via 
if you want to call it failure, you can call it failure, but maybe not quite getting over the line, right? So if you're a golfer, if you're a footballer, if you're a tennis player, if you're whatever, you come close and you're not quite there and you're not quite good enough to beat the world number one. And you do it again, maybe, and you're not quite there to beat the world number one. But maybe uh, from those experiences, that's how you do it the next time, you know? And I'm not trying to paint a a sort of picture that like, okay, we're going to have to go through all kinds of pain to get to where we need to go. But it's not unusual that in order to develop and grow as a team, as we saw last season when we didn't get uh, top four, we use the motivation, we use the experiences to get better again this season. And I think at the heart of why I feel somewhat relaxed in my sadness is that I think this team and this manager have demonstrated an ability to, uh, to show that from uh, adversity or in inverted commas failure, they can learn and they can improve and they can get better again. And that's that's what I truly believe that we are capable of as a team and as a club right now. So there's some solace in that, even if what we did on Friday night was absolutely um, maddening and annoying. Um, so By the way, just a quick update from seven Park, nil. Andrew. It's uh, five nil to Newcastle after 21 minutes. Fuck off, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Every cloud. I, I take back what I said about bottling. Uh, you know, there is a context in which that can be used, <laughs> and it applies directly to Tottenham Hotspur and only to Tottenham Hotspur. Um, uh, that is extraordinary. No, I think you're absolutely right. I suppose the counterpoint to that, and you know, one that I've seen a few people mentioning online, is 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 what's happening at the end of this season mm-hmm. reminiscent of what happened at the end of last season. Um, I don't yeah, know. Maybe you know, key injuries or injuries to, to yeah. some players have, have impacted us. I think it's easy to draw that parallel, but then, you know, it doesn't mean it's going to happen every time. Um, uh, you know, we we came close to what we wanted to do last season. We didn't get there. We don't know yet what's going to happen between now and the end of the season, but if we don't get there, we will have come close. So... You know, that's that's the sort of side of it that I'm hanging on to. Uh, you know, I think even if it is reminiscent, it's sort of better is not the right word because um, there's still some games to go or whatever. But, I, you know, I don't think that because it happened last season and we've had a little bit of a wobble, um, you know, as, as I wrote in the blog today, my friend West Antone is going, you know, we are still capable of doing three bad results, but three bad results are draws rather than defeats, as was the case that's this time true. last year, you know? So that's maybe, maybe that's something. Maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. It, it, it's It's sort of impossible to say is it? Mm. but it's we are a sort of head of schedule there's a lot made of Mikel Arteta's we're at phase three do you remember mm. that comment he made yeah, yeah. phase three or five and everyone's been kind of puzzling out what that might be um but I have my own uh idea which is that uh, and it's complete guesswork, but phase one to me seems to be like stabilization and renewal. Phase two could be um, get back into Europe of some kind. Mm-hmm. That's last season. We very nearly got Champions League, ultimately got the Europa League, achieved phase two. Stage three, Champions League qualification, 
we're in it at the moment. We're actually contesting for the title. Stage four would be uh, to compete in the Premier League and in Europe in a serious way. And stage five, be in a position to actually win those things. Mm. That seems to me to be like a reason. If I was a manager pitching a five-year plan, that's something like what it would look like. And basically, you know, over the last couple of years, we've been head of the curve. Um, and maybe there is some catching up for us to do before we're really ready to get over the line. But we're talking like it's over and it's not happening. Well, and yeah. I know. still to play for. But that's, I think, a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism or whatever. And, and, you know, when the disappointment is acute, it's really difficult to convince people. It's difficult to convince yourself, um, not least because of how difficult it's going to be anyway, that if you go to Man City and you win a game, then it's back the fuck on in a big way, you know? Mm. Um, and I do wonder... Yeah, I, do, I, I think this is just part and parcel of what we have to go through when you're at this end of the table where where it's it's just so disheartening every time you don't get the result that you want. And in particular, you know, a game like this where you're at home on a Friday night to the team that's bottom of the table, um, you know, which is its own dynamic, you know, at this point of the season because um, they're not like bottom of the table on 10 points like some kind of Derby County back in the day. You know, Southampton aren't a bad side. Uh, I don't think there are really too many bad, bad sides in this league anymore. But uh, I think that's evident as well because of how close it is right down at the bottom. But when you don't win a game like this, people will say, well, you don't deserve to be champions if you can't beat Southampton at home on a, on a Friday night. You know, if you can't respond to two draws by turning up and, and winning, you know, and I, I get that. I completely get that. That may well turn out to be true. I hope it isn't. Hopefully this may turn out to be an important point. You just never know. But it's difficult to convince people of, of that, and I get that completely. So, look, let's talk a bit about the, the game. The team selection, no Granit Xhaka. So Fabio Vieira started in midfield. Alexander Zinchenko was back. Apart from that, I think it was pretty much as expected. Mm -hmm. You want a bright start? You want a composed <laughs> start? You yeah. want a... You want to impose yourself on the game. You don't want to do what we did. And I know there's a school of thought that says, you know what, if you're going to make a mistake, it's better to make that mistake in the first minute than the 89th minute, which I suppose is true. But I think it's much better not to make that mistake because it was just so basic and avoidable from Aaron Ramsdale. Um I mean, he held his hands up straight away, as he would, but that's a nightmare start. And I think in some ways it sets the tone for for what you need to do, you know? Um, the way games can change, the momentum, all that kind of stuff. But giving a goal away in the first minute, how do you even explain it? I don't know. And And again, it's another question I would ask, can it be coincidence that... Arsenal have conceded or nearly conceded goals in the opening moments of home games quite a lot mm. recently. Um, it's obviously a terrible individual error from Aaron Ramsdale. And I think there are times in a season where something like that happening might not be a catastrophe because it you know, might sharpen the team's instincts or mm. just get them in the game. I think at this particular point, 
after what happened at Anfield and what happened at West Ham, I think it was the last thing that Arsenal needed. And I think mm. it uh, engendered a kind of shakiness and uncertainty, particularly in the sort of defensive third that did real damage. Um, so, yeah, it was a, an awful start, the worst possible start. And so interesting, you know, you look at what happened at West Ham. Thomas Partey tries a turn. We've seen him do a hundred times or mm. more this season, gets caught. Aaron Ramsdale makes a, a pass again that we've seen him make countless times, gets it wrong. Is that pressure? Can it just be coincidence that those errors have happened at this time? Mm. You know, we can never be sure, but it... it it feels like it may be a factor there. Yeah. And it... The only thing I... I can think of, sorry uh, no, to cut on. across, the only thing I can think of was that Ramsdale was trying to set the tone in a way um, in a way that he can. We've seen him make these passes. He's going, okay, I know I've got Gabrielle on one side, Rob Holding on the other. And by the way, I think, you know, Rob Holding should be demanding the ball off his goalkeeper in that position. Uh, because he's sort of facing him and he's po I think he actually points to Zinchenko who's gesturing for the ball but I think you know does that get the crowd going straight away if the keeper makes a pass between two Southampton players Zinchenko takes the ball drives into midfield bang 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 away we go up the other end I'm not saying we score a goal but you 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 sort of drive forward I did, that's the only explanation I have for what Ramsdale did there Yeah I think they would have talked about Southampton um, historically and a little bit of late, they've been a, a side that will press and you know look to close the space. And they probably said, you know, we've got to play through them. That's why Zinchenko's come and stood in the centre of the pitch like that. And it's Ramsdale trying to be positive and progressive. But it wasn't on, mm. really. I mean, I think he's duped, isn't he, by the Southampton forward who makes it look like he's switched off when he's very, very much alive. Yeah, he's um, hiding, isn't he? He's hiding yeah. behind um, Partey. He hides behind him. Not enough pace on the pass. Sneaks in. Um, it, it, you know, I think when you play the way we do, probably every season or two, you're going to concede a goal like that. Mm. You know, Edison does it. Allison does it. Again, it was just the worst possible time the worst possible time for it and it, yeah um yeah and then i think I, I to be honest i think he could have done better on the shot i think he could have a stronger hand but i mean least. i think that's the sort of um maybe he could but you know real realistically he shouldn't have to be making a save there because he shouldn't be giving the ball away yeah and he's not you know. set or positioned how he would want to no. be um so yeah a huge what, what's the word? Like a sucker punch, really, you know, right at the yeah. start of the game. I, I think a lot of fans probably hadn't even really settled in their seats, you know, and and suddenly mm. um, we're a goal down. And it got worse, of course, yeah. because um, Theo Walcott scored a very Theo Walcott goal. How many times have we seen him do that at the Emirates? Sharp movement. Again, I don't think the defending from Arsenal is particularly good. We lose the ball in midfield. There's a lot of space for them to run into. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a silly, it's a very high, very, very high risk thing uh, Odegaard does, you know, by playing a, a ball inside a bit blind and it's cut out. Uh, he and Partey are basically taking out the game. I don't think Gabriel will be 
pleased with his defending when he watches it back in terms of, you know, anyone who knows anything about Theo Walcott knows what he wants to do as soon as uh, Alcaraz has the ball. Mm. He wants to peel off and, and you know, Gabriel, I don't think is wise enough to it. It's and, a yeah, lovely I mean, pass. I mean, you've got to lovely, say. It's a brilliant pass. Yeah. It's a brilliant, brilliant pass. It's a lovely pass, clinical finish. And, um, yeah. you know. How many times have we seen that goal? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt like at, t- at times in this game, and I don't want to cast aspersions on Theo Walcott's professionalism at all, but I do feel like there were some times in this game where maybe he got a couple of things wrong that mm. he could have got right. I, yeah. Maybe that's ridiculous for me to say. Um, but well, it was there, very much a no celebration, wasn't yeah. it? You know, um, Can I ask you what you thought about what happened next? Where... Zinchenko got the players into a bit of a huddle. I'm curious what you thought about it, and I'll tell you what I thought about it after. Okay. So I, 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 the TV commentary were very sceptical. I was all right with it, only because we've seen um, similar things, huddles after scoring, huddles after conceding, and I felt it looked necessary. Like I felt like we were all over the place at that point in time. So Mm. I was okay with it. But what did you think? I wasn't mad for it, to be honest. I have to say, I just thought it was, I don't know. I think you can do what he did without doing that. You know, I think as a professional footballer, when you're two nil down after 14 minutes, you don't necessarily need to get into a huddle to be told what you need to do. And I, I look, I think the intentions were good. I think he really wants to try and show leadership. Um, But I just, it's so unusual to see something like that, that it stuck out a little bit for me. And I think even Odegaard came over and had a bit of a word, didn't he? Because I don't think he got into the huddle. Maybe he went over the sidelines and had a word with, uh, with the manager or something. I'm not sure. But he came over and then seemed to have a word with Zinchenko. So look, I, w- I wasn't mad for it. Maybe it's because it's unusual and I'm not, not used to seeing it. Then again... Then again, we did score not too long afterwards. Um, and I suppose any effort to try and uh, focus everybody after a, such a terrible start uh, isn't the worst thing in the world. But just, you know, yeah, I, I, I wasn't mad for it. But I get it. There's something, I'm trying to think of the right adjective. Performative? A little bit, yeah, it felt a little bit galaxy, if that makes sense. Yes, that's, um, that's it. That's it. And look... Um, yeah, okay, yeah, no, I'll leave it there, yeah. But I I, I was all right with it. All right. I think people's, people, yeah, I think everyone will feel differently about mm. it. I, I felt like, because, you know, Gary Neville was very sort of critical of it um, on TV, mm. and I was kind of like, yeah, but if you'd seen us not doing this over the course of the season in different circumstances, you might, it's not, as atypical as he was making out. But no, I mean, whatever it was, mm, we were a mess at that point in time. We were a bit of a mess. And I suppose you could draw parallels between, let's say, the opposition having a bit of a chance and then the goalkeeper goes down and Mikel Arteta brings all his players over to the sideline to have a little bit of a coaching break. Yeah. It might have been, you know, along those kinds of lines. But, um, I mean, the goal we scored was a really lovely goal, and I think a really good time to score that goal. Um, You know, it worked well, didn't it, with um, getting the ball to Odegaard uh, in midfield. He plays Saka. Saka into Martinelli. I mean, it's a really good finish for Martinelli, isn't it? 
It's a great goal all round. Mm. Saka does brilliantly, I think. Um, I mean, it starts with, and this is probably something we'll we'll talk about. Um, it starts with Thomas Partey. Well, we have possession, but then it comes to Thomas Partey, who is playing basically as the right-sided centre half. Yes, we sort of changed mm. how we built up um, with Partey dropping in alongside holding to try and help yeah. us get out there, which, you know, is, is telling in its own way. I, I was really struck in the first half by how happy Southampton were to let Rob Holding have the ball. Mm -hmm. um, there were times where every player would be marked and they would, if Holding had it, they would just back off. They weren't worried at all about that. Mm. Um, and clearly it's something that they've looked at and tried to tweak uh, and as you say, we, you know, golf started building up in that way. I think, to be honest, I think it hurt us more than it hindered us at times. Like, I, 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 think, I agree. You know, our team is so um, immaculately and uh, immaculately engineered to a point of precision. And I think having to change that and change that shape, it also meant Partey was a little bit absent when Southampton broke on us at occasions. Mm -hmm. He wasn't where you would expect. And I think we suffered for that time. So, yeah, um, it was a case of trying to adapt, really, for the absence of William Saliba. Uh, but I wasn't... I understand the reasoning, but yeah. I don't think it was hugely successful. I mean, there were moments at both ends, to be fair, in the first half. I think uh, Ramsdale had to make a good double save at one point. Um, and towards the end of the half, we had some some moments. Gabrielle headed over, and then there was the Ben White chance from a corner, I think, which was cleared off the line. Uh, and it's that was a, right before half time, I right think. Right before yeah. half, there was a really good, really good clearance off the line. I think it was Alcaraz who was Same basically player. Southampton's best player. Probably came off. Yeah. In the interval. I mean, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it wasn't like we had an avalanche of chances. No. I, I think Southampton, obviously there was quite a serious injury, wasn't there? Um, mm. What's the boy's name? Bednarek. Uh, Bednarek, yes. I always get Bednarek and Vestergaard as footballers confused. I think they were at one point, both at Southampton. It's really confusing for me. But it was Bednarek who uh, yeah, had that nasty fall and that, in a weird way, you never want to say this in injury, but helped Southampton, killed the momentum of the game, I think, a bit, mm. slowed things down. Um, and then, yeah, at half-time, they made the switch to a back five, which uh, ultimately, I guess they'll feel was the right one. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was a. I think that was quite a brave substitution or a brave tactical yeah. decision from Ruben Salas. Um, Took their best player off, yeah. Well, yeah, I know he was on a yellow card, but then so too were his uh, two fullbacks. Weren't they? Walker Peters was booked and um, the other guy, Perro, on the other side. You know, they've both been booked. So it was clearly more tactical than worrying about, you know, a yellow card uh, from, you know, it's not like Alcaraz is going to be a sort of hatchet man in midfield or anything like that. Um the sort of change that you would you might make if you're 20 minutes to go or 15 minutes to go and you're trying to hang on to a lead but at half time it was a little bit brave were you surprised that Mikel Arteta didn't make a half time change a little a mm. little I, I, it, he doesn't do it a ton so 
it's I would be, be wrong to say I expected it, but you know, Vieira had come in for Shaka, and I think we were suffering a little bit for that in the middle of the pitch. Um, mm. I think I think it's easy to say when he doesn't play and you don't win the game, but I, I do think that uh, we really miss Shaka. Uh, on the night, I think and... that's. I don't think that's unreasonable or outrageous in any way to say, considering how well Shaka has played this yeah. season. And you know, on a night like this where there's experience, he was missed, no question about it. Which is why I, I, I think this was a really important game. I said something on Twitter about this, um, you know, before kickoff that this is a big chance for Fabio Vieira because you know we've seen flashes of what he can do this season, but not a huge amount. Um, he did start the game against Bournemouth, I think, when Shaka was left on the bench. He did, yeah. Um, but this was like, okay, we need you. You're the guy that we're putting in to replace Granite Shaka, who's been a very important player for us this season. We need you to deliver. And I'm not writing him off or anything like that, but I think it just told us that he's not quite ready yet. He's not quite ready yet to do that job. And I know hindsight is is 2020 and all the rest of it. But I do wonder if Mikel Arteta himself might think, you know what, maybe because it's Southampton at home, I could start Kieran Tierney at left back and I could play Alexander Zinchenko in midfield, mm-hmm. you know, which is where he plays a lot. Um, I wouldn't have been at all worried or surprised to see Leandro Trossard start in there as well. A home game against Southampton, you know, this this is the kind of game where I think you can take a bit of a risk, which I suppose Vieira um, was in that sense. I think he really struggled. He he, he found it very tough going. Um, I think he's a nice player when he's got time and space and room, but when when the game is going on around him, it tends to pass him by a little bit at this point in his Arsenal career. So, you know, I was a touch surprised that... He lasted after halftime, but not at all surprised that he was taken off after, what, 10 minutes? It was about 10 minutes of the yeah, it was second early, half. early on. Um, I'm just going to check the live blog here. Um, feels like... Oh, I don't have it here. I think everyone would have had that as their first change, probably. 56 minutes. So in the 11th minute of the, the second half, he came off for Trossard. And actually, the, the suggestion you made of Tierney at left-back, Zinchenko in midfield... I think would have made particular sense against the Southampton team with Theo Walcott in it. You know, mm. you know exactly the sort of spaces he's going to look to exploit, and you know they're the spaces that Zinchenko likes to vacate. Yeah, um, we haven't ever seen it though. I don't think we've ever seen really it's, Zinchenko a bit, start as a midfielder in this. No, Arsenal. it's a bit strange, you know, because to be fair, normally there isn't the the opportunity to give it a try, or your hand is enforced in that way. And and look, I know in all likelihood Kieran Tierney is going to be off in the summer. Um, you know, people will feel differently about that. Um, but I think another factor to this is that in a game like this, you know, Tierney has been the distance and, and won titles at Celtic. And I know it's a different league and all the rest of it, but I just wonder if in, in this circumstance, that little bit of experience of the business end of the season might just have been uh, more useful than than sort of hoping that Fabio Vieira could sort of flourish or this could be the game where he blossoms, you know, that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so on comes Trossard, but then what is it? Another 10 minutes and we're pre one down. 
Yes. I mean, a, a corner we did not need to concede. I don't no, think. I think it was sloppy from Partey. And, Zinchenko and Partey failed yeah. to play out. Ball goes behind. Listen, every dead ball against Southampton is a threat, right? Because of James Ward-Prowse and his delivery. Um, but it wasn't even Ward-Prowse who took it, was it? Because it was, uh, was it not? <laughs> right. I don't think so, because it might, I could be I wrong. I think it was. I think it was. Was it? Oh, okay. My, my recollection is that it was a, an in-swinger, but you, you're probably right, actually. Why wouldn't? Why would anyone but Ward Prowse take it? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and listen, it's a great delivery, but this set piece problem has been with Arsenal for a long time now, you know, a number of months. It predates the absence of William Saliba. That much is sure. Um, and, you know, we're just conceding way too many goals. You're right. It is. It's Ward Prowse. I should never have doubted you or, no, it, or yeah, his set piece ability. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, and, and it is a great ball and it's immaculately. That's the word of the podcast for me today, but that it's perfectly executed, isn't it? The near post flip. It is, but it's poorly defended as well. It's yeah. poorly defended. When you look at it again, the guy um, who holding his marking uh, just steps in front of him. I mean, it's basic stuff. You know, you can't let your guy get goal side from a set piece. He flicks it on. I think Sinchenko and, and Saka are probably ball watching a little bit at the back post and, and the guy heads it home. So, I mean... <sighs> 3-1, I have to say, I, I really, I was in a sort of state of disbelief and mild nausea at that point. I, and, I, and I think you weren't alone in that. I think that was, I wasn't at the ground Friday night, but through the TV, that was what I could see from the stands and from the players as well. Mm. There were a lot of shaking heads yeah. in, on the pitch after that goal. Yeah, you know, the, the, I can't I, believe this. Yeah, I think they were shock, in shock. And to be honest, it took them the best part of the rest of the game to resuscitate. Well, to- you say that, but like within a, a minute of them scoring the third goal, we had a massive chance. What was that one? That was, was the that? one when Gabriel Martinelli curled it to the back post and Gabriel Jesus put it over the bar. Yeah. And I think I he mean- should score there. I'm sorry. He should score. I, I love him, but I don't think he had... A good game on on Friday night. No, uh, my yeah, my brother texted me afterwards, and he was like, "How's Jesus not scored in that game?" Yeah, and I know what he means because it, there were just a number of sort of pretty decent opportunities, and you would, you know, you know, he's not going to take everyone. He's never been that player, but the form he's in, mm. you'd expect him to take one. And and listen, he was part of some pretty good moments in the second half. You know, I thought his hold-up play was good. He had a couple of nice spins in the box. He was very much involved in mm. the equalising goal. But his finishing, it, 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 it is what it is, right? Like, mm. he's a brilliant player who isn't the most efficient in front of goal. I think we like to believe that when players change clubs, their spots change too. Um mm. But I think that's just part of who he is. Uh, but even he would typically, I think, get a goal out of the sort of the combined chances that he had against Southampton. No, and that one in particular, you know, if if because it was deflated, I'm looking at it again. Oh my god, you know, it's it's there. He just needs to keep it down, put it either side of the goalkeeper, and it's three two in in the 60, 69th minute. Yeah. You know, and that then 
changes. That's a very different. That is, yeah, very different scenario. When you consider what we did in the final 10 minutes of this game and how close we actually came to winning it in in 10 minutes and basically, you know, two minutes of normal time plus eight minutes of of added time, how close we came. If you go 3-2 there, who knows? But of course, I mean, the big issue, the main issue is that you've, you've conceded three goals. Um, you know, we can talk about our strikers. We can talk uh, talk about our attackers. We can talk about missed chances. We can talk about being slightly unlucky with one or two of them um, in the end. But, you know, you can't concede three goals. Um, you just can't concede three goals. No, you've given yourself a mountain to climb. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, it is that, you know. Yeah. We scored enough goals to win this game nine times out of ten if you defend. Yeah, correct. correct. And that's the, that's the thing. Like, we still scored three goals mm. on the night. That should be enough to win you any football match mm. if you're defending properly. Yeah, or even um, half properly. Yeah, and to be honest, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, And, and the first goal it is an, a catastrophic error, but it's something that can happen. Mm. To concede... That like the other two goals are just sort of sloppy, like they're just not great defending. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah, not yeah. huge individual errors. They're just a team that isn't really sharp and focused. And that third goal that they got was an absolute killer. And I, I think it was a consequence of minds being on. We've got to chase this game. We've got to score goal. I, don't, I think the focus wasn't right. And mm. yeah, and 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 as you know, we had that opportunity through Jesus and. Got to give some credit to Gabriel Martinelli, who I thought was like the guy for Arsenal in that yes. first, you know, hour or whatever it was. He looked like the one who's going to make something happen. Yeah, um, I've seen very divided views on Bukayo Saka's game on the opposite flank. Right, flag, but I thought he was good as well. I thought he looked like you know a threat. Um, I mean, I think the the goal, the third goal, is maybe a slight blot on his copybook, but um, yeah. you know, the the other thing to take into account with Saka is, you know, the um, the way that the team is now leaning left more than right when we attack. Mm. Um, and I, I spoke about this on Friday as well. There was a good article on Sky Sports about how we are not getting the ball down the right-hand side the way we normally do. Therefore, there's a lot more emphasis on the left side of the attack. I think uh, Gabriel Martinelli ended up with six key passes in the game, you know, goal, um, I, I agree with you. I think he was brilliant, but also I think Saka was, was very good as well. I think the two 21-year-olds on either side of our attack were the ones who showed the most leadership and the most uh, and contributed the most in, in this particular game. You know, as well as maybe Martin Odegaard when he sprung into life as well in the final part of the game. So let's just talk. That, though, we didn't have a shot on target, did we? For like the vast majority of the second half. I yeah. Think. Um, I'm just trying to uh, see. Uh, we hit the woodwork, uh, but I think that was offside. There were a couple of nearly moments. I remember Saka putting in a couple of sort of you know crosses across the box that you know people didn't quite get onto or didn't yeah. get good contact. Um, there was a couple, wasn't it? Bazunu made a save from from Saka. Can we talk about the changes? Um, yeah, because we did make more changes. Eddie and Kedia came on for. Uh, Zinchenko, and then we had Reese Nelson coming on for for Martinelli. Um, The Smith-Rowe discussion has been going on for a while now. I saw him warming up this time at least, but I couldn't help think 
So we know he's alive. We know he's there. But I couldn't, I couldn't help thinking, I think I sent you a message, um, uh, my instant reaction to the substitute type thing. Um, you know, I could not help think that when Nelson came on ahead of Smith Rowe, uh, there was, you know, there's fuel to this particular fire or adding smoke to this particular fire, you know? Um, and Something I think- curious is going on, mm, I think, there. And Reese Nelson did very well. Um, he did you know, very well. I think you could say that, you know, w when it comes down to it, it's, it might well have been the right substitution because he was involved in the the Saka goal. I think it was his shot. He also made an absolutely brilliant um, intervention, didn't he, when Southampton tried to break, I think it was possibly yeah. from a from a corner and the speed he showed and the strength he showed to hold off the opposition player to allow us to keep the ball. So it's not that um, Nelson himself was bad, but again, I think it speaks to what's going on with Smith Rowe that he came on first. I think that's true. Um, I, I think the subs, to be fair, made a good impact. You know, I think Nelson, as you say, was good. I think Trossard was good. I think Eddie made a difference as well, just having that extra presence in the box. Um, but there is clearly something to this Smith-Rowe situation. Mm. Uh, it's a bit of a I, worry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know anything with any certainty. I gather someone uh, took some of my comments last week out of context and uh, tried to spin it into a story. But Funny, that, I, the way that happens. Yeah, it's it? yeah. crazy to think that anyone could ever do that. But um, it's strange. It is strange. I mean, especially in a situation where you need a goal. Mm. He clearly isn't really trusted at this point in time. No. And it's a dramatic change from where he was, you know, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so, look, Southampton fans are having a ball. They're olaying as they pass the ball around. They're doing yeah. the Poznan, which, frankly, they can shove right up their holes. I'm all for the bounce and everything else, but, you know, if you're doing the Poznan because it's like Man City, go fuck yourselves with that shit. Um, then we score a goal. Almost out of nothing. I think it's a little one-two with, with Ben White, Martin Odegaard, curls a shot into the bottom corner. And from there, James, I, I find it so difficult. You know, we've talked a lot, haven't we, in the, in, the, in the last couple of weeks about how moments in a game can completely and utterly change the momentum and change the dynamic of what's happening. Because I think Arsenal were sort of huffing and puffing and not looking really like threatening. Then we score a goal and all fucking hell breaks loose in attacking terms. I think that's, yeah, I think it's belief. I think that they, I think the belief had been sapped from them by mm. conceding the two two-goal leads over the previous two games, by being 3-1 down, staring down the barrel of a defeat. And I think Martin Odegaard deserves massive credit because that was a captain's contribution. I, yeah. I was watching the game sort of 75, 80 minutes and Arsenal, you know, Southampton, there's a lot of gamesmanship, eating up the clock uh, as they're completely within their rights to do. It's down to the officials to get better at policing that situation. Any more time wasting, Bazunu, and I'm going to give you a talking to about <laughs> more time wasting. And if you do it again, I'm going to pull you aside and we're going to have a quiet word about your time wasting. And after that, if you do it again, well, I'm probably going to have a word with your captain, at which point I'll talk to you again, maybe, about how you just need to speed things up a bit. Fuck mm. me. I mean, listen, he, he he's within his rights to do whatever he wants to do, but the onus is on the on the officials, isn't it, to, to say to a goalkeeper, look, 
you know, there are limits to this shit, dude. So, um, you know, a yellow card would refocus the mind to an extent. You're right. But I think, as I said, I was watching it and thinking, I know that not winning this game is heartbreaking, but Mm. losing it is catastrophic. And we have to give everything to try and steal even a point because it being as tight as it is at the top, who knows what a point may be worth. Absolutely, the, yeah. The final reckoning. But I don't think it was going to happen until Martin Odegaard stepped up. Captain's contribution, a really excellent goal. And suddenly they they felt like they believed again and they played with so much more conviction. I mean, they really did. I mean, we scored a second goal, what, within, within two minutes? minutes? Yeah. Um, where... I think it was it Reese Nelson who had a shot. Uh, it's saved. It comes back out. I mean, we're we're camped in their half now, you know, um, yeah. absolutely camped in their half and and making chances. Um, and you know, we were apart from one moment, which I guess we might talk about. We were patient, um, which is a difficult thing to be in the circumstances in which we found ourselves. I mean, there was a Jesus shot that was blocked. Remember, I think Eddie had a little bit of a, um, uh, was a pass from Odegaard into Eddie, knocked it back. Um, and the the goal then when it came, uh, Nelson shot, Bazunu saves, Saka's there to, to, to put it home. Um, and there's still eight minutes then. There's still eight minutes, mm. which is a lot of time. And we had such a lot of momentum. We could have won it. There's no two ways about it. We could have won that game. Um, well, Trossard's inches away from winning oh, it on his own, isn't he? I fuck mean, me. I mean, what can you imagine? Can I think we can all imagine. But, you know, that's how close we came. I think you're absolutely right, though. We had to get something from this. A point is underwhelming. Of course it's underwhelming. But we had to do everything we could to, to take something from this game. And I suppose, you know, if we're going to criticise them um, for their defending we have to at least acknowledge that there is something about this team that they will keep going. As we've seen a number of times this season, late on, we get goals that mean things, um, you know, for, for for the matches that we're playing in, you know? Yeah, it's, if you're going to do things in this league, you have to have that capacity yeah. to turn the screw late on. It's the sign of a, uh, a good team and... You know, we have become a side where you can be a goal up, you can be two goals up, and we're entering the last ten minutes, and you aren't safe. You know, yeah, they say that about Liverpool at Anfield. Um, they will soon say it about Arsenal because we have shown. Mm. You know, we almost did the impossible by coming back from three-one down on eighty-eight minutes. You know that that would have been extraordinary, and the points would have been very welcome. But I think you know, as good as it would be. We'd still be here. I think if we if we if we were being sensible, we'd still be here having conversations about oh, for the sure. defending yeah, yeah, and yeah. the performance. You know? um, I'm just looking at the Trossard one again. <sighs> Don't it's too Jesus. Cool. You know, and, if he's and, just two yards further out. Um, Reese Nelson has an effort, doesn't oh. he? It's deflects just wide. And there were a couple of balls in the box again where it's like if it falls just another inch in the right place. Maybe Jesus gets a strike at it, but he doesn't quite manage it. It's it's mayhem, isn't it? It's absolute mayhem in those last seven or eight minutes. And it's so hard to explain why 
we do that then rather than, you know, at 2-0 or whatever. Of course, game state plays a part, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and psychology the, of all that is huge. Yeah. And what's going through the Southampton minds and the exhaustion of the Southampton players and, mm. you know, the, the marathon they're running to try and stay in this league. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, It, it was a crazy game. And I think sometimes we, we do overlook when we look at fixture lists, how crazy those kind of top versus bottom games can be. I remember very well, I think it was 2012, something like that, a year we were going for the Champions League and Roberto Martinez and Wigan came and beat us at the Emirates Stadium. And it was like one of those that we all had down as a gimme. They were going down, I think. They were right at the bottom of the league. It was like, well, we'll turn them over. And it just didn't play out like yeah. that because they're fighting tooth and nail and you're safest playing a team in mid-table. At this in it, once you get into April May, yeah, you want someone who's safely ensconced in like tenth or eleventh. They're the games you want. No, that's it. Um, yeah, I mean there is something to that dynamic when a team is scrapping for its life, and you know ultimately what's what's kind of amazing about this game, this you know another one of those great games for the neutral is that like both teams will have been absolutely heartbroken at that result. Yeah, both of them. Southampton, you know, two 0 up with you know two minutes of normal time to go how big would those three points have been you know they they're um you know their their fans are probably talking this morning about like oh man if we only had another couple of points and then we've got this game and you know if we get that then we're probably safe or whatever yeah, and we're yeah, like yeah. if only we had the other two points because you know it gives us this, this margin for error i mean i guess that's football but um can I ask you about yeah. your reaction to the Thomas Partey shot? I thought it was possibly the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm laughing, but I was apoplectic. I, I, I can't... I c could not believe he did it. I still can't figure it out. Like, I'm like, it It, it was insane, wasn't it? Did it was he have stars insane. in his eyes thinking like, if I put this top corner now, I'm going to be... Maybe, but there was like space. I remember thinking... Like, yeah. There was, we had a man over on the right-hand side, I think. We did, we did. Um, I'm just going to uh, see if I can find it here. Oh, yeah, here it is. Hang on. So he's – the ball comes in from Gabriel. He picks it up. He's like pff, 35, maybe f 40 yards out. Like he's not even in the top of the D or anything like that. He's miles out. He's It's just the stupidest thing. He's got Martin Odegaard to the right of him. I think it's Ben White. It is Ben White. Outside him again. And Southampton are kind of pulled over a little bit to the left-hand mm. side. So we've got these two players where Odegaard could pick it up. He could play it to Ben White. He can get a ball into the box from a good area. And he cracks it over the bar. Oh, just the most maddening moment, to be honest. Really was. And I know that's not why we lost. Or lost, you hear me? I know not that that's not why we we dropped all the points, but when you've got that momentum, like if it's a kid, you know, if you throw on an eighteen-year-old and he gets like, oh, here we go, I could make a name for myself here, but like a guy of his experience, no excuse. Yeah, it was like karmic payback for anyone who's ever gone shoot when he had the ball. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, I, I, it was sort of staggering. Like, it, it verged on... Uh, I don't want to say this. It feels really harsh, but, like, it wasn't very professional. No, it was. I mean? It was completely unprofessional. Yeah. Completely unprofessional. 
And you can see Odegaard outside him just sort of put his hands on his head like, what the fuck are you doing? I know. You know? Because even if it goes a yard wide or a yard over, that's too far. You know, like mm. Arsenal were in a position there where we were really turning the screw, really able to dominate the space and create chances. Well, I mean, um, that's it. Southampton were camped in their own penalty area. Where, yeah. did, the, where did the Odegaard uh, goal come from? Edge of the area. Yeah. where we'd forced them backwards. Where did the Saka goal come from? We played the ball into the box. It was laid off. Nelson shot and Saka is there inside the area. He's like, what, 10 yards out? You know, this is where we had to get the ball. We had to get the ball in those areas. And even subsequently, you know, the couple of scrambles that were there where it didn't quite fall for Jesus. And Jesus, you know, I think he tried to buy a penalty um, you know, at least once. It's one of those where in the yeah. sort of, in the mayhem of what's happening, the referee goes, oh, well, of course, it has to be a penalty. Um, I don't think it was, He was by the looking way. for it, 100%. He was 100% he was. looking for it. But, you know, that I can understand a bit more than what Thomas Partey did there. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying we would have scored had he kept the ball moving, but he should have kept the ball moving. And but that's maybe all, that's, that's pressure, you know? Maybe yeah. that's tired minds, stressed minds. Maybe there's a kind of anxiety and panic in that. It expresses yeah. itself in different ways. And I guess you'd have to file that alongside it. And mm. yeah, it, it, I gave praise to Martinelli for what he produced while he was on the pitch in that last period. Yeah, full of praise for Martin Odegaard. Mm. And I think Leandro Trossard as well, who was very, very good yes. at just kind of doing the intelligent thing, you mm. know, be having a clear head under intense pressure. Mm. But unfortunately, it was a bit too little too late. Yeah. Um, and we did drop those those two points. Um, I mean, what else is there to say? I'm sure we have some other topics to discuss, but probably in, in questions. Um, yeah, I guess so. I'm just having a little flick. No, there's nothing else to say about it, really. I mean, I'm sure there'll be questions that will touch mm. on individuals and sure. Wednesday and all sorts Oof. of things. Okay. Well, let's take a little break here because it's been over an hour for part one because, you know, that that there has been a lot to talk about. So we'll take a little break and we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog. No longer with a blue check. And at Arsblog, and also on the, the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. He didn't uh, offer to pay for yours. He didn't foist the blue tick on you, no? He did, of course. Uh, I was one of the first people he called. But as you know, Andrew, I'm a, I'm a man of the people. Uh, sure are. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, no blue tick. Stick your yeah. fucking blue tick up your arse. I think like that's Samson what you said. And they, and they cut his hair off. Just a... 5-1 at St. James's Park, by 5-1, okay, that, one. A scoreline I have some affection for. Uh, I believe that was the final score in 2016. Oh, it was, day. yeah. When so 10 men, <laughs> when 10 men Newcastle beat Tottenham, yes. I remember yes, it indeed. well. Um, just want to give a quick mention to the fundraiser uh, that we are doing with our friends at Arsenal Vision, uh, raising funds for the Arsenal Foundation. The remarkable total right now, having initially set a target of £100,000, we are currently at £364,136. Um It's absolutely incredible. There's been a couple of really big donations as well. Um but they have followed the lead of you guys uh, as part of our community here and part of the Arsenal Vision community who have been so generous and kind and uh, have contributed so much uh, to what the Arsenal Foundation does and is going to do in the future. So, um, yeah, it's just amazing. And just to say thank you, there's still a few days of April to go. Uh, the Arsblog donation has yet to be added to this total. So uh, let's see where we end up um, with that one. The other thing I just want to mention is that tomorrow we will be announcing details, or maybe later today, I don't know, I have to chat with Elliot, of our end-of-season live event, again with the Arsenal Vision guys, same place as last year, James, good fun, Union Chapel in Islington. Yeah, Tickets will be going on sale on Tuesday, Patreon members will get first access to those tickets. Um, so They went very quickly last time. They certainly did. So if you want to sign up for Patreon, you can do that. Patreon.com forward slash arsblog. And just to be clear, if you sign up at any point in the month of April, your uh, subscription will go to the Arsenal uh, Foundation fundraiser. So not only do you get first access to tickets and get all the extra stuff that we do on there uh, you will be giving money to a good cause as well so keep an eye on the patreon we'll give full details of that but tickets will be on sale on tuesday uh, and it is going to be happening at the end of the season the last saturday of the season at union chapel in islington so uh, looking forward to that one way or the other i have to say yeah listen it'll be We'll have quite the story to tell about this season, whatever happens. That is true. That is true. Now, uh, questions. Do you want to go first? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right, then. Let me <laughs> let me ask you this one, then. Go on. Um, does, we talked about defensive issues, and we talked about um, 
the goals we're conceding. And when we're going into a game like this, I think we need to be more defensively solid. So we've got questions about uh, our defending or, or possible changes to defending. This one comes from Big Tall Paul uh, on the Discord. He says... Uh, it appears obvious we need to make a change in defense for the City game. If Saliba doesn't make a, a miraculous return, is Ben White at center half and Tierney at right back a potential sticking plaster? Maybe. I, it, it's so difficult, isn't it? It's like mm. it hasn't been working. But do you try something new in the biggest game? Probably not just of this season, but for quite a long time. I mean... I don't know if you can. I, I I think it might be too risky to kind of tear up the blueprint, even if it's not been hugely effective. I mean, my first option, my preference is, you know... The miraculous somehow, recovery? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Somehow uh, we feel the cadaver of William Saliba... Um, and uh, magically, he's he's good and fine. Um, failing that, I think Kieran Tierney has played right back in his career once or twice. I've got a funny feeling he did it for Scotland because of the old Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, issue. My brain just doesn't quite accept a left-footed right back. I know it sounds absurd, but like my brain sort of slightly struggles with it. Yeah, I, I know what see you mean. it so rarely. You very, very rarely see it, to be honest. You'll see a, a right-footed left back uh, semi-frequently. And the re there is a reason, by the way, and the reason is that um, it's a generalisation, but in general, I think right-footed players are... Uh, in their development, more encouraged to use their weak foot and develop that aspect of their game. So I think a right-footed player probably, on average, on like a global scale, is more two-footed than a left-footed player who his whole life has been told, play left-back, play left-wing, play you, on the left. You've got a cultured left-foot. Exactly. I, I just think that um, the left-footed players are kind of not indulged, but there's sort of yeah, mm. there's less need for them to develop that uh, the other side and play on the other side, and therefore uh, they tend to be a bit more one-footed. Yeah. I mean, I won't lie to you. I have been doing the thing that a lot of people do. I've been going through all the various permutations of, you know, what could we do? What yeah. could we do to change things up? Could we bring? Ben White into the centre, then who do we play on the right? There's no ideal candidate there. Could we go to could we go to a back three? It's not impossible that you could play a back three of Ben White, Gabrielle, and even Kieran Tierney, maybe, yeah. or, or Kivior. You never know. Then you've got wing backs. I mean But do we have a right wing back in this? Do we we don't really have a right wing back, but we've got Bakayo Saka who has played as a wing back in his time, so knows the role. How then does that change the you know, the dynamic of the team and, and, and their um, you know, their various um, passing patterns and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've been through pretty much every one you can think of. Thomas Partey at centre half, perhaps bring Jorginho into midfield. Um, the, the one, the one that I know that it, I know that you hate it, and I, to be honest, have hated it. But the one that I wonder it you could do would be Partey at right back with. Jorginho in midfield and play Ben White. Next to you see the problem. Yeah, I 
you could. I just don't know about Jorginho in midfield against like a team okay like Man City. In the first game, was he not against them? I mean, I think he was fine. I just wonder if he might be overrun. Maybe overrun a little bit. I, I mean, my sense is right for this game. I'll tell you two things. One, I would not be surprised if there was a bit of a switcheroo somewhere yeah. from well, Mikel Arteta defensively. Yeah. Would not be surprised if we fielded a backline without Rob Holding in it. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't How know. How much of this is on, is on him? Because- See, I feel like there is an element of him being a bit of a lightning rod, right? Yeah. But then there's all the statistics that are coming out and, you know, the the, the way that, like, even, as you said, in the first half, the, the, the fact that Partey was dropping into that right centre-back position to pick up the ball, to progress it up the pitch, you know, that, that says something. Um, and I, in, in a way, I kind of feel a little bit sorry for Rob Holding that the player he's come in for has been one of our best players. Uh, William Saliba, you know, he's absolutely been one of our best players. So it's a difficult thing to live up to. I just wonder if we might see a back four without without him in it. I said there was going to be two things. Oh, the, the other thing I was going to say was that I think for this game, and I'm, we're not exactly short of them, but I just wonder if we might be best with the most technical players we can get onto the pitch. The, the more technical players we can get on the pitch, the better. Isn't Jorginho one, though? He is, yeah. But so is Leandro Trossard, mm-hmm. um, who could potentially play as the eight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, he did very well, mm. albeit in a kind of attack versus defence scenario. Yeah, true. Which is probably not what it's going to be at the attack. <laughs> um, probably not. But it's it might be more open than people than people think. Yeah, and also, I mean, yeah, City do give up chances, I think. And listen, a little, tiny little playmaker dropping into midfield, having a great game at the Etihad. Mm, Um, Sounds familiar. There's some precedent for that. Uh, Just on holding, listen, clearly we're hurt by... Saliba's absence, and it is compounded by Tommy Asu's absence. I mean, I've that, got no yeah. doubt that if Tommy Asu was fit, Rob Holding's not playing currently. No, he's not. No, no way. Um, so it's those two things in concert which are really problematic. Uh, I do think some of our defensive frailties predate Saliba's absence. Mm-hmm. You know, the set piece issue was there before that. Uh, I'm looking through fixture lists. You know, we conceded two to Sporting, two to Bournemouth, two to Aston Villa. Um, you know, goals against Palace and uh, the like in games that we completely dominated probably didn't need to concede. So, again, I think it's not right to kind of scapegoat him entirely in this situation. Um, and there were games where he came in and looked okay, you know, we sort of were fine. Um, but clearly, it's a worry. And I have bad memories of that first half in the FA Cup where mm. he was playing right on the edge. You know, it was reminiscent of the game he had against Spurs. White Hart Lane, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, in order to live with his opponent, or to try and live with his opponent, he had to take a very aggressive approach 
and one that I don't think would have seen him last the 90 minutes had he stayed on. I agree. I, you know, like I said, I feel a bit sorry for him. I think there are clearly differences between him and Saliba. Saliba is not a one-man band, though, when it comes to defending. Um, I don't think he is the sticking plaster to our to our defensive to all of our defensive deficiencies, right? No. Um, I think he would make us better, obviously, of course. But at the same time, I think there's an onus on the collective as well. When you are down an important player or two, you've got to find ways to be able to cope with that. And maybe you can look at the manager and uh, and ask a question or two there as well about how do we organize ourselves to, um, you know, to to cope defensively. Um, but yeah. I think it, I think there's a sort of weight of something going on here that might just uh, preempt a change for, for Wednesday. And I don't quite know what it's going to be, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. My thing is, to my mind, our best chance at City is our attacking threat. You know, I don't see a scenario where we go there and grind out a nil-nil. It's not to say it won't happen. But I don't think we look well placed to do that currently. And so I'm wary of a system change that would involve, for example, repurposing Martinelli and Sakura's wing backs or something like that. I feel like um, we need to retain the strong departments of the team that we do have as far as possible. Mm. Um George Graham went to a back three at Anfield eighty nine. Yeah, I although know. that was that was a one off game, and I don't think it's quite, I don't think it's quite the same. I think as much as we need to get something from this one, it's not winner takes all necessarily. There's still, you know, some games to go where other shit could happen. Could oh yeah, L- maybe listen. not, but but could. And if City win all their games, and you know, <laughs> what can you say if they do that? But they do have fixtures beyond this one where. There could be a slip. I mean, any fixture can be a slip. So I think we have to stay in contention. I think we have to not lose. I'd, yeah, Lord only knows how about how we go about doing that. Mm. I, I, I wonder if he will consider the Jorginho midfield dropping Partey into the back somewhere. I, I, mm. I wonder if he will do that just because... As I say, Jorginho is a very technical player. I think there are games that suit him and games that don't. And I happen to think City is one that could suit him, you know, more than, say, an Everton. Mm. Um, But we shall see. Yeah. Okay. Your question. Um, Well, SM Design, we talked about it a bit in part one. SM Design says, is there a tactical reason I'm missing for starting Vieira over Trossard? Wouldn't it make more sense to be playing Trossard in midfield? I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, A, they sort of view that as Vieira's position in the long term. Yeah. And B, having Trossard on the bench gives you a really good option from the bench if you need it in a game where you're holding something back, holding something in reserve, you know, sort of um, putting all your irons in the fire at once. Um, there, I mean, there's the amount of money that we spent on Fabio Vieira is a factor here. I mean, for a club in our position, the the money that we spent on him, although it wasn't the, you know, big signing of the summer because we were more, more excited about Jesus maybe or more excited about Zinchenko, 
still a lot of money. Mm. And do you think there's any possibility that he's getting these minutes because club feel they've made this really substantial investment in him and so they've got to make a success of it? I mean, there's probably a reason why they paid all the money. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have paid all that money if they didn't think he was a good player or didn't have the potential to come in and play and, and be a first-team regular. So, you know, maybe the two things are directly connected. I'm not sure they're playing him because they paid that money. Um, but the fact that they paid that money suggests that they think that there's a, a really good player in there. Like I said earlier, I think what this game showed is that he's not quite there yet. He's not quite ready yet. Um, he probably needs... He needs to be... Look, he's never going to be the biggest guy in the world, but I think you do need to be a little more physical, a little more robust. And I think that's part of, of what they need to do with him in order to develop him. Um, lots of players have had a an indifferent first season at a football club and then come good when they understand the league a little bit better. Um, so that's the only reason I can think of. You know, A, this was his position, and, and B, they just wanted to hold Trossard back. Like I said, in hindsight, I think Mikel Arteta would probably do something different, but that is, that's a hindsight type thing. Mm -hmm. Here's one from Scrumpy Lungs on the uh, Discord. He said, do you think there's a correlation between our drop-off in results and the players slash manager talking much more about the title run? It seems that since it stopped being one game at a time, we've, been, we've become more and more complacent. Maybe, I mean... <laughs> It is a different beast, a title running. I do think, talk all you want about one game at a time. <sighs> you know, that's not how the players would have felt when West Ham equalised the other day or when they went 1-0 down against Southampton with a you know, minute on the clock. It, it, everything is has this bigger context and all those moments, a missed pass from Aaron Ramsdale, a missed penalty from Bukayo Saka, the ramifications are so much, feel so much greater. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm sure it is a factor. And in a funny way, if you're looking for a positive, maybe it will help Arsenal that I feel like it's not right to say the pressure is off them now, but I think most people make Man City favourites at this point in time. Mm. Uh and the expectations of Arsenal at the Etihad are pretty low. Um, and uh, who knows? That's a different scenario, isn't it? It might suit them more. Yeah. I, I think inevitably uh, the fact that we are in a title race has played its part in, you know, some of the sort of psychological issues we've faced in the last few games. Do, do you agree? Yeah, of course. Just the way the, the way a season goes. But I don't think it's the fact that they've been talking about it has has gen uh, generated a, a complacency or anything like that. I mean, there was a point where nobody was talking about it because nobody wanted to sort of jinx it, if you like. And then it becomes clear as the season goes on that, you know, this is the reality of where you are. And then you have to talk about it. You know, you have to talk about it. You, you, it's just part of what's going on in your season. Same if you were right at the bottom of the table, nobody would want to talk about relegation. But if you're, you know, sitting bottom and you've, you've got 23 points or 24 points, that is going to be the, uh, the thing that people talk about. So, uh, I don't get any 
sense from the players or the manager or anything that they've said or done that that anyone is talking about this or anyone has ever talked about this in anything other than an aspirational way. Like this is an ambition. This is something they want to do. This is something they're desperate to achieve. Nobody has said like, yeah, we're going to win the title, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's going to be easy from here. Um, so I, I, I don't see that the things are, are connected. I do, I do think there is something to just what happens at this point of a season that it affects players, it affects uh, teams time and time and time again, not just Arsenal. Pretty much every team, you know, that's ever done anything at the business end of the table has has experienced something like this as well. Yeah, you know? and I think until you do it, until you kind of break the back of it, until you win that trophy, yeah. there's always that doubt. You doubt yourself. Am I able to do this? Am I right? Am I the right person? Are Are we good enough? Think about Man City's first one. Yeah. You know, it's it's... What were they playing? Ten men, Queen's Park Rangers, and they needed a goal in the last minute of injury time or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, that's how that's how tight these things can be. Absolutely. And the first one's the, the most difficult mm. and the most important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Magnus Holmberg on Twitter says, what happened to the legal action against Man City? Have you heard anything recently that would indicate an outcome before the end of I the saw, season? I saw a few questions like that. And look, <laughs> Do you remember I, people saying like, we don't want legal action against City because we don't want an asterisk on it when we win the league. Give me the fucking asterisks. <laughs> give me all the asterisks. I'll take them. Take an asterisk right now. I don't, um, like, I don't think anything will happen. I mean, you know, of course, Manchester City should be ruthlessly punished to the full extent of the the law, whatever it is, the regulations, like take all their points, relegate them, take all their Premier League titles off them. That's what I personally would like for me and for you and for everybody listening to this, of course. But I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen between now and the end of the season. That that if anyone's thinking about that as their safety net, stay on the uh, stay on the high wire, guys. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't be waiting on that to come through. Uh, is it my question? I think, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I had one here. Boom. boom. Uh, okay, it's a bit speculative, but Gateshead Gunner says, what do you make of the links to Mason Mount? Does the arrival of a potential new left-sided eight mean Smith Rowe will be sold, or could it be a sign that Vieira might be loaned out to get the game time he needs to deal with the physical demands of the Premier League? Yeah, I like it. I'll say that. And I've sort of been uh, waiting for Arsenal to to see if Arsenal would make a serious move on Mason Mount. And to be fair, I think it's Charles Watts' story. I don't think that's what he's written, uh, and, and that's accurate. I think it's that they are sort of interested. It's kind of a watching brief. Mason Mount is probably going to leave Chelsea this summer. And I think there are two or three positions in this Arsenal team he could play. Um, I think he could play where Fabio Vieira played on Friday night. I think he could play off the left. I think he could play where Martin Odegaard plays. I think he's a very able footballer and a little bit underappreciated. And um, the Chelsea fans in my life uh, are very complimentary about him. Mm. He's, he's best mates with Declan Rice. 
and very close with the Arsenal boys uh, who are part of the England setup. Six one, by the way. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. Oh, I'm refreshing every couple of minutes. Don't you worry about that. Um, so I think it would make quite a lot of sense. The the, the issue would be money and it's I'd say more so even on the salary than the fee because his issue at Chelsea is basically that they've not agreed to his demands and I think wherever he goes you know Liverpool have been very interested and I think that's sort of much more advanced at this point in time you're talking about a wage um between two and three hundred thousand pound a week Oof. yeah well, so it's not it's not nothing it's a lot I mean yeah I think he's a a good player. My my gut feeling on this was like that it was maybe a bit agenty, in that like we're a good club to be linked with at this moment in time. Like I like you, I can see yeah. how he could fit in, but I just wonder if this is ahead of the end of this. Well, I mean, Chelsea season is basically over anyway. Um, Very much so. Uh, yeah, a, I mean, a way I, of sort of putting I, I him out there, mean. and you know what I mean. I know what you mean, and I. To be to be fair, like the story is, as I say, it's not um, the idea that you know Arsenal have made a bid or are close to mm. making a bid. It's just that they like the player, and that is true. They do like the player, but um, they've made a lot more ground with certain other summer targets, including Declan Rice, for example, than they have with Mount at this point in time. So it's it's not like he's top of any. Mm. lists or priorities it's more the case that i've been looking at it and thinking well he's going to move this summer and he ticks a number of boxes in terms of the type of footballer he is the positions he plays the age profile i i I think it makes a degree of sense maybe the salary is where it falls down um Mm. so we shall see but i think arsenal are gonna you know, I think they're very aware that they are now qualified. Mm, not yet. Not yet. Still have a... On the verge. Mm. And I think they're very aware that they don't have a Champions League squad at this point. In time. Mm. So they they need numbers and they need quality. Mm. I mean, a part of that question was about, about Smith Rowe. And then there was another question on oh, the yeah. Discord uh, from You've Been Dozed, who said, uh, with Nelson ahead of Smithrow in the pecking order, do you think this may be an issue of Smithrow having difficulty bringing his training up a level? The standard has been raised from last season. Reese is playing for a new contract and delivering in the minimal minutes he's getting. Friday, he took a shot on target that deflected to Saka for the equalizer. And there was the other one we talked about where he did this sort of dance of frustration as it deflected wide. And he mm. says, so why not give the minutes to a guy fighting for his future who's delivering over the guy who's still recovering from groin surgery? Um, if he is still recovering from groin surgery, I, 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 I'm not sure that that's it. No, he's fit as far as I am aware. And it's interesting as well. Did you see that moment with Arteta in a press conference where mm. a, a reporter was listing all the uh, attacking options he's got at his disposal and he kind of went, and Reese. Um, mm. And you feel like, would he say and Emil right now? I don't know. I... Yeah. What was the question? I mean, is it about oh, oh, is it the standard? Training? Yeah. I do think that Emil is suffering slightly from being part of the same cohort as 
Martinelli and Saka. I think that they are a very specific type of personality um, where there is like an absolute clarity of focus and enormous drive and very palpable like uh, hunger. And I think that Emil is a more uh, gentle soul, but no less talented. Mm -hmm. And listen, doesn't work any less hard. I think if you look at his numbers on the pitch, he covers a lot of ground. He's a great athlete. But I just think he's less sort of um, extroverted and obviously uh, one of those guys who like will run through a wall. Yeah. And I, I get the sense that Arteta is trying to elicit that sort of behaviour from Emile Smith-Rowe. And I'm not convinced that that's who Emile Smith-Rowe is. Yeah. And it doesn't make, make mean him not useful or not good, but I, it does feel like maybe there's a just the chemistry between coach and player at this point in time, it feels like it's not quite right. I think that's probably uh, as good an explanation as I've heard, to be honest, because it's not about talent. We know the talent is there. Yeah. It is probably more about something to do with his approach or his attitude or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm not saying he has a bad attitude by any means. I just do wonder if in his attempts to raise the level across the board, um, there are going to be some casualties across the way. You know, that whole thing we talked about, about players we we like leaving. You know, if you'd said this to me at the start of the season, I would have said no way w with regards Smith Rowe. No. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be overly shocked now if something something happened. Um, yeah, there were times in the first half of the season where I thought, I, I have had the thought he could go, but I, I was really thinking maybe next summer. It just mm. feels like at a time when you're going into the Champions League, we just spoke about depth and quality and what someone like Mason Mount might bring. Uh, well, Emma Smith is here. Yeah. He's on the books and he's an Arsenal Academy boy. And he's done pretty well for us when he's had the opportunity. So That's true. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a strange one. It is a strange one. And and you almost wonder if they're sort of sending him a message, you know, or they're trying to, if they're sort of pushing him towards uh, – the exit, I don't know, but it's odd. And I don't think anything indicates we're suddenly going to see him between now and the no. end of the season. There have been enough circumstances where it's like, well, you would bring on Smith-Rowe here, and he hasn't. Yeah. Can we just do one more? Because I've got to go. I've got to drop my daughter out to the airport. I've got of to course. get this podcast up. And we've been going long enough anyway. Um, Rat Bear on the Discord said, should we talk a bit more about the Kane trademark foul from Martinelli on Bednarek? I think we yeah. rightly slander Kane for it, so we should not accept it from from our players. Yeah, do you know what? I haven't seen it that many times because Sky, understandably, didn't really show replays of the incident because he landed on the back of his neck. So there's quite a long period where they mm. didn't show it. I have seen it again since. I don't think it's... Well, I'm biased, but I don't think it's quite as egregious as some of the Kane ones. I completely agree. Yeah, I don't think there's as much malice to it. Um, but then I would say that. But they are... 
a bit of a scourge, those challenges. And I'm not going to turn a blind eye to it just because it's an Arsenal player. They are dangerous and... You know, it's up there with pushing someone into the hoardings, really. It's something that's avoidable and very, very high risk. Yeah, I prefer he didn't do it. I Like you, I I don't think it's quite like the, the Kane one. I think he just sort of stands his ground as much as anything. But no, I, I, I don't like it. I, I did say to you, didn't I, on, on WhatsApp, that when it happened... Gary Neville taking umbrage at this kind of challenge from Martinelli when Kane has done much worse time and time and time again really annoyed me, which yeah, isn't to make any excuses for Martinelli. Don't do that. I don't think you should. And, you know, the the fact that they took Bednarek off, despite the fact he was up again and was absolutely fuming and wanted to play, the fact that they took him off is uh, tells you how serious his landing was. So maybe he was concussed or maybe he could have, you know, whatever. Um, and that's not nice. And you don't want to see that uh, happen to anyone, you know, at the hands of any Arsenal player. But it, it did kind of annoy me that, that all of a sudden Gary Neville doesn't like those challenges. Yeah, well, uh, there's a big difference, isn't there, between one incident with Gabriel Martinelli and a, a repeat offender yeah. in the case of Harry Kane. Um, but, you know, I think we've got to be big enough and grown up enough to say it was a bad challenge yeah. and he should cut it out. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Okay, look, we're going to have to leave it there for this particular episode. Join us tomorrow on Patreon. We'll have an episode of The 30. Phil Costa and I will uh, review the weekend's Premier League action for you. On Tuesday, we'll have a Premier League preview podcast, of course, looking ahead to the game against a small game. Uh, Can't remember who we're playing. Um, (laughs) We're going to do a podcast as well, aren't we? We are. We're going to do... Lick lick our wounds. uh, Yeah. The wounds of celebration as I claw my forearms into into ribbons with joy at the uh, Bakayo Saka hat-trick that he's going to score at the Etihad. We'll have an Arscast extra, an extra Arscast extra for you on Thursday. Uh, Please do join us for all of that. In the meantime, have a great weekend and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.